Hey, thanks again for joining us. I want to say hi to all of our campuses. Thanks for being a part of our services. Let's also give it up for our God Behind Bars guys. We love you guys. Grateful for you. This Proof of God series has been a lot of fun to go through. And I got to be honest, it's pretty cerebral information. So I know that some people are like, whoa, this is some heavy stuff. And there's a little bit more of that today, but we're going to get through it together. And I think you're going to like this because I'm giving you, I wanted to today give you tools you can use when you're talking to someone about your faith when they bring up science. Because I, I find that they say the same things over and over again. So I've just kind of learned how to deal with that and how to really bring new information to them. And so that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. Last, when we started the series two weeks ago, we, we talked talked about the Big Bang Theory and how that points to a God and, and that God must have started off the universe. And then last week we debunked evolution, which is really the only alternative to a God uh, being the founder and the creator of the world. And so we debunked that last week. And today I'd like to give what I believe is my favorite, most compelling evidence that I have seen recently in science. There's always new discoveries, but this is something that's been recent in the last 30 years that's been discovered in the entire grouping of this particular science proves there's a God. I mean, the whole thing does. And so please pull out your notes if you would. I want to dive right into that. Then what I want to do is answer some typical objections that people give. And so it's going to be kind of pieced together a little bit today. That's why today's message is called Final Conclusions on the Proof of God. And so I want to try to give you some help when you're, when you're being asked those questions by your favorite family member this, this uh, Thanksgiving about, well, I don't believe there's God because of blah, 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 blah. I want to give you some answers to those things, okay? And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But the first thing I want to talk about is a whole group of science that's been called that's called biodiversity. And so let me just give you the point. Number one, through the study of biodiversity, it has been proven over and over again that life systems function together, which requires a master planner. So I just want to dive right in and just talk about biodiversity and what that means. Okay, first of all, I almost forgot. Some of you guys are looking at me like, he didn't say it. He didn't do it. What's our mission as a church? To take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. Thank you for reminding me. I saw those stairs, and so I don't want to get in trouble. Yes, that's what we're all about here. Biodiversity is interesting because biodiversity basically speaks of the symbiotic relationship between all of science, between all of our ecosystem. Ecology is a part of biodiversity. There's so many layers of it. But let me give you a real simple picture of biodiversity, which proves that there must be a God. Let me just show you this picture real quick on the screen. This is a picture of man and a plant, and this is the most basic of biodiversity right here. But just real simple. When you breathe in, what do you breathe in? You breathe in oxygen. Then what do you breathe out? Carbon dioxide, then plants breathe in what? Carbon dioxide, where they breathe out? Oxygen. So if a plant didn't exist, could man live? No. If man didn't exist, could plants live? No. They both need each other. So here's my question. How can over time, if we're supposedly come from tadpoles and developed into human life, how could we have developed this need for plants all along and they had to develop slowly too and they were meeting a need that we had and we're meeting a need they had? That's not possible unless it all started up at the same time. How can there be a symbiotic relationship between anything that needs to exist if you don't have it already fully formed at the very beginning? This is like creating an engine and then saying, well, then 100 years from now, we'll create gasoline. We'll just expect the engine to run without gasoline until then. It doesn't work like that. Man can't live without plants. Plants can't live without humans. They both need each other. That's just one example. Let me give you a few more. Um, how about this one? Uh, plants also need fungus. Most people know this, but fungus is a requirement. Now, hopefully it's not between your toes, but you do need fungus. <laughs> You need fungus because basically the way you say it is you have to have the right moisture, which is a nice way of saying fungus, right? 
so you can have plant life. Also, did you know that spongy coral is needed by fish and fish are, uh, is needed by spongy coral? They need each other as well. Did you know that, that without uh, the, the uh, coral in the ocean, the fish would create too much nitrogen in the water and it would actually kill them? And so the, the coral actually helps control the nitrogen, which balances out the ecosystem of the oceans. So fish need the spongy stuff. The spongy stuff need the fish. They both need each other. All of this comes together. And so it, it balances out the ocean. This is one of the coolest um, symbiotic relationships that they found inside the ocean, by the way. And again, there's so many layers of this, I can't even add them all up. But let me just give you another example of this. Did you know that eels require cleaner shrimp? They call them cleaner shrimp. The shrimp that clean the teeth and the body of an eel. And these shrimp actually hang out. It's kind of a gross shot, I know, but that's what they do. They crawl into the mouth of the eel. Look at the sharp teeth. If I'm him, I'm not crawling in. I'm thinking, no, I'm going to be eating. This is not going to be good, right? I don't want to be lunch. But actually, they know internally that this is what they are to do. Now, think about this. The, these, these creations don't have the minds that we have, but yet they have this built-in knowledge that they're not going to be eaten when they crawl into the mouth of this sharp-toothed you know, fish because they know our job is to clean the teeth of this eel that's what they do, and that's how they eat. They eat the food in between the teeth, and it also takes away the bacteria that would ultimately kill the eel if they didn't do this. So they are fed by the food from the eel. The eel keeps alive because they clean the teeth and therefore the bacteria off of the eel. They also climb all over the body of the eel as well. These cleaner shrimp, if you study this, actually hang out in a cleaner shrimp station. They all have it, they group together, and these eel pull up like a car wash, I kid you not, and then these shrimp crawl over and clean all the dead skin off of it, as well as clean their teeth, and then go about their way. This is what they do. They protect the shrimp as well. And so talk about a symbiotic example. This is amazing. So there would be no eel without this because the bacteria would have killed them. There, there wouldn't even have the species any longer. It wasn't for these cleaner shrimp. By the way, this also begs the question, if God can create some kind of system that takes care of the basic needs of an eel's teeth, then don't you think God can take care of you? and whatever you're dealing with right now, if God can so balance everything out that he can take care of the birds of the air, then can't he take care of whatever you are dealing with today? God loves you and he has got you. He will take care of you. You can trust in the Lord. Isn't that good to know that? Let me get to some more cerebral stuff here and give you some quotes about this. Dean Overman is a scientist. He wrote a book called The Case Against Accident and Self-Organization. That's another way of saying a case for God, that there must be a God. He says this, For life to persist, living creatures must have a means of taking in and biochemically processing food. Life also requires oxygen, which must be distributed to all tissues for single-celled life. Oxygen must effectively and safely be moved around inside the cell membrane to where it is needed without damaging the cell. Without complex mechanisms to achieve these tasks, life cannot exist. The parts could not evolve separately and could not even exist independently for very long because, you, because they would break down in the environment without protection. That's a fancy scientific way of saying what I just told you. Man needs plant, plant needs man. They couldn't exist apart from each other. So how did they develop slowly over time separately and eventually need each other? doesn't make sense. Dr. Henry Zuhl put it this way. He's a scientist. He said, how could multiple organisms have once lived independently of services they now require? Systems of living things supporting each other, the modus operandi of biodiversity is exactly what we would expect to find from the creator who said, give and it shall be given unto you. 
How amazing is that? Science just proved that God had to create it all at once for it to run like a machine together. This is proof of God from science. God's real. And there's a proof right in front of you. Somebody needs to get excited that we can have faith and know that God is real and the science proves it. The science literally proves it. Now here's what I wanna do. The next three points I wanna give are essentially things that people ask me when I talk to, uh, talk to them about my faith. And like if I'm man on the street talking to someone about faith, they'll say, well, I kind of have some issues with faith of, because I believe in science. And I said, well, let's talk about that. And then I bring up biodiversity a lot of times. It's one of my go-tos because it's such a simple thing that anyone can understand. But then oftentimes they'll say, well, what does the Bible say? And these are just random things that I want to just kind of throw in just so you know there are answers to it. Well, well, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Well, the Bible does talk about dinosaurs because sometimes people say, well, you know, we know there is dinosaurs and the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. So therefore the Bible is not accurate. Actually, the Bible does talk about dinosaurs. It talks about dinosaurs in the oldest chronological book in the Bible, which is the book of Job. In fact, I want to read this to you. Job chapter 40, verse 15. Take a look at behemoth, which I made just as, as I made you. It eats grass like an ox, sees its, pow see its powerful loins and the muscles of its belly. Its tail is as strong as a cedar. The sinews of its thighs are knit tightly together. Its bones are tubes of bronze. Its limbs are bars of iron. And then this next verse helps us understand that God created and caused this same animal to go extinct. He says, it is, it is a prime example of God's handiwork and only its creator can threaten it. This is God's way of saying, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out. It's <laughs> pretty much what he did. It says, the mountains offer it their best food where all the wild animals play. It lies under the lotus plants hidden by the reeds in the marsh. The lotus plants give it shade among the willows beside the stream. It is not disturbed by the raging river, not concerned when the swelling Jordan rushes around it. No one can catch it off guard or put a ring in its nose and lead it away. And in Job 41 and 42, it talks about um, not only the behemoth, but the Leviathan, which is, the, of course, the, the dinosaur that we believe uh, was in the water, that, that flowed through the water. So, so we know the behemoth, we'll just put a picture of what we think a behemoth was, was which basically was a Barachiosaurus, is a hard word to say. And so as you see on the screen there. And so that's what we believe that was. Now, I believe, and I want to be real clear here, that the Bible does not explicitly say this, but many scientists who are also people of faith that put their, their Bible study and their science together think this comes together very well. And I tend to believe this too after studying the Bible for multiple decades, that I believe that if you say, well, how did dinosaurs go extinct? Again, I, I can't say this verse says it. Um, it says in Job that, they, that God could threaten them, that God is the only one that could take them out. So I believe God did, because since we don't see him anymore, having said that, I believe that the simplest way to explain that dinosaurs would no longer exist is this. There's no reference to dinosaurs being loaded on that ark. And there's also evidence where we have found dinosaurs in the strata of the earth that it was obvious that they, didn't, they weren't torn apart by another dinosaur or another animal or another hunter because you see them all pieced together. In fact, they even seem to be in rapid movement when they died. So that's interesting. It sounds to me like someone was in a cave and they were in rapid movement trying to escape when the sludge of mud that comes with storms and comes with uh, hurricanes and comes with massive flooding probably encased them and destroyed them. That's why you have them in whole pieces. So I believe that the biblical flood of Genesis 7 and 8 is what destroyed the dinosaurs ultimately. Now, again, well, what verse is it? I don't have a verse on that. 
That is something I'm building uh, through the obvious evidence of dinosaurs that were intact. We have actually, there's multiple places around the world you can go and see the intact bones of dinosaurs, which says they weren't torn apart. They were, they were killed in an instant and there was layers of, over them and those layers happen rapidly. That sounds like a flood. If you don't believe layers can happen rapidly, just own a home in Rockport last year and you'll discover it. The rapid layering of dirt that entered your home and garage from a flood. And so that's essentially what I believe happened at this point. More on those layers in a moment, but that's what I believe uh, probably happened. There's, there's tar pits in California, the La Brea tar pits. You can go see some of this for yourself if you'd like. Um, there's, there's lots of pictures of this, and so that's what I believe happened. So real quick, I want to talk about another question people oftentimes say. Well, I don't believe the Bible because, and this is a famous one people use a lot, because the Bible speaks of the earth being young, and everybody knows the earth is millions upon millions of years old. This is a common thing you'll, you'll hear people say. Everyone ever heard anybody say something like this? They'll say, I don't believe the Bible because it speaks of the earth being only 6,000 years old. It implies that, which is about accurate to what the Bible says, six to 10,000, somewhere in between there. And they'll say, but we know, I love how they always use the no, we know, beyond a shadow of that, I'm always wanting to say, so were you here 350 million years ago and say the earth began to make sure it all happened like that? So you just know. How do you know this? Well, because my science book said so. What if they didn't know, but they wrote about it anyways? What if all of it was kind of made up? Because we really don't know. Well, we know the Earth is old because of carbon dating, is what they typically refer to. Carbon dating is how they try to add va the value of time to the layers of the Earth. And on a simple level, it works, but on a complex level, it doesn't. In other words, getting larger dates, it doesn't help at all. And so how do we know that the Earth is old versus the Earth being not that old? Well, I believe carbon dating is wrong. In fact, there's lots of evidence of this. There's a whole study of this. If you look up rate, R-A-T-E, rate scientists, there's a whole group of scientists that studied the rate of the aging of the Earth to discover its age, and what they found was quite shocking. In fact, look what it says in the Antarctic Journal. This is from 1971. That's how long this has been in debate, by the way. A freshly killed seal was carbon dated as having died 1,300 years ago. Well, that doesn't sound accurate. So a seal died, and the next day they carbon dated it, and the dating said it was 1,300 years old. Now, obviously, it's not 1,300 years old. It's one day old. So if you can be off by 1,300 years, do we really want to trust that scale? If you get on a scale and it says you weigh 115 today, which many ladies would say, I'd love that scale. I would never get rid of that scale. I would keep that scale forever. <laughs> But if you got on the scale and it weighed you at 115, but then the next day it weighed you at 250. Then the next day it weighed you at 185. Then the third day or, or fourth day it weighed you at 450. At some point you'd say, okay, this, is just, this just doesn't work. There's, there's no basis to this. The numbers are just too far off. If, a, if an accountant came to you with wrong numbers over and over and over again, wouldn't you finally say, I need to fire this accountant. I can't trust the data. Guys, over and over again, carbon dating has been proven off, way off, to the tune of millions of years off on dating the strata of the earth. You ever seen the picture that they show you in textbooks where they have like the layers of the earth, right? And they go all the way down to its core and they got different colors and they, they have like this age and then that age and they give you like this millions of years ago and this millions of years ago. You know what that picture represents? It represents a picture. We, th there's no way to really know that. So that's an assumption they're building in. Guess why they assume it's so old? Because it has to be that old for evolution to work. But we just debunked evolution last week, so why do we still need an old earth? You see the problem here? 
You say, oh, Pastor, are you saying there's no fossils? No, I think there's lots of fossils. I just don't think it takes a million years to get fossils. I think you, get, you can get fossils in 100 years, 200 years. There's lots of proof of that. We, don't have, we have this thing called fossil fuels, you know? I mean, South Texas runs on that. So we all know a lot about that. So we know there's aging. It's just, what if we found out that maybe what we thought was a million years old is 100 years old, 200 years, maybe 1,000 years old? Maybe, maybe we're just off a bit. In fact, look what the research has shown. This is from A.A. A. Snelling in this article, Radioactive Dating and Conflict. Fossil wood and ancient lava flows yield radiocarbon. This is from a technical journal called the Creation Nilo, Ex Nilo Technical Journal. I'm sure you guys read that all the time. So here we go. This is what they said. A series of fossilized wood samples that conventionally have been dated according to their host strata to be from the tertiary to Permian years, that's 40 to 250 million years old, all yielded significant detectable levels of carbon-14 that would conventionally equate to only 30 to 40,000 years or ages for the original trees. So what was assumed to be 40 million to 250 million years old is actually 30,000 years old. I don't even trust that. If you're that far off, why are we even talking? Like if, you, if, you, if your numbers are millions off, like, hey, how much is a Honda? Oh, 16,000 for that car today. Oh, okay, that's great. And you come back to, hey, I want to buy the Honda for 16,000. Oh, did I say 16? I'm sorry, I meant 232,000. You'd be like, what? Oh, I'm sorry, I meant 1.3 million. Okay, this is just, are you playing the game with me? These aren't even real numbers. You're just throwing stuff out. When the numbers are that far off, how could you even call that calculating? When you're 40 million off, I think it's time to admit that carbon dating is not the way we should be counting our, our layers here. There are layers of the earth. They're not as clean as you see in the little textbooks because of the massive flood made layers throw on top of other layers, and so it's all twisted. But the truth is, is that there are layers. I just don't trust the dating of the layers. In fact, the next point I think will prove that. But number three, would you write this down? So if you keep up, if you keep up, number one is through the study of biodiversity, it has been proven over and over again that life systems function together, which requires a master planner. Number two, in case I didn't say it, the Bible confirms the existence and extinction of dinosaurs in the book of Job. And number three, an old earth is required for evolution theory to be considered probable. Carbon dating is the biggest argument for an old earth. Carbon dating has repeatedly been proven to be way off in its dating. Now, some theologians that are kind of what I call half scientists, half theologians, means they, they want to believe the evolutionary theory. So they're trying to make the Bible fit into that, which is kind of funny because I think we should actually maybe make the evolutionary theory fit into the Bible. But however you approach it, they don't really fit together. But some theologians said, hold on, wait a minute. In Genesis, it says God created in the first day this and that. God created in the second day and then the third day. But the word day in the original Hebrew language, yom is the original word, and that could mean day as in today, or could mean day as in back in the day. So if you use it like back in the day, like if I say, man, back in my high school days, according to my kids, that was hundreds of years ago. It wasn't quite that long. But if I refer back, that could be, in my case, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, right? But in many people, they would say, well, day could mean 24 hours in, or it could mean in our English language, back in the, you know, the uh, old Western days, back in the beginning of America days, right? So you can see how the word has some movement. So what if, Pastor, the word day represents thousands or even millions of years, and therefore evolution can still work with the Bible? Here's the problem with that. Look at Genesis 1, 3, and 1, 8. Check it out. It says this. 
It says, an, an evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. That's in verse 3. Verse 8 says, an evening passed and morning came, marking the second day. Now, if day meant lots and lots and lots of days, then shouldn't it have said, and many evenings passed and many mornings came, and then that day was passed? It doesn't say that. It says, one evening, one morning, day one. One evening, one morning, day two. Which means, I believe, in the literal interpretation of Scripture, that one day, shocking as this may sound, is one day. That is a 24-hour period of time, and I believe that the carbon dating that people are using to try to prove otherwise is actually false. It doesn't add up. And for those of you who aren't quite convinced yet, hang with me, because I think this next thing uh, could convince you. And that is number four. The rapid erosion of the earth is too quick to allow for the plausibility of an earth that is billions of years old, which is the required ingredient for evolution to be plausible. This is based upon simple science of oceanography and geology. Did you know right now that California is losing nine feet a year? Literally, the state of California is getting smaller every year, not just because they have high taxes and people are moving to Texas. On top of that, the actual physical presence of California is literally shrinking by nine feet a year. Did you know that? So if scientists want us to believe that the earth is literally 350 million years old, which is a common number that you hear evolutionists say, oh yeah, well, the earth is 350 million years old. That's, so you have enough time for evolution to happen. Well, last week we debunked the concept that time doesn't help things happen. Because if I took a bunch of engine parts, threw them in a room, didn't put them together and said, just close the door and just give enough time and they'll come together. You would say you've lost your mind. But they're trying to convince us, oh, just add enough time and eventually they will. That's, that's insane. Also, I mentioned this last week, that non-living things have never turned into living things, there is not a single scientific example of that. Not even one, and they've been trying for decades. Not one example of non-living matter combining and turning into living matter. I don't care how much time you give it, there's no amount of time you can add for that. So again, this whole concept of we just need more time, and then we can go from tadpole to man. It's just, it's absurd. It just doesn't, doesn't work. But let's play that game. Let's play the time game just, just for the sake of argument. For those who say, well, no, the earth is 350 million years old. Awesome. Why is America here? Because that nine feet of erosion a year, we're not even talking about the other coast also eroding or the south coast also eroding because all, all of them are eroding. You know, you know what we have here in Corpus Christi? It's called a seawall. Why? To stop the erosion. So if the earth is 350 million years old, did you know that America, based upon nine feet of erosion a year, would have been underwater in 1.6 million years? Why are we here? 350 million years? Why are we not all swimming right now, holding on to floaties, saying, someone save me? Why, why are we inexistent? And based upon this same math, by the way, did you know that Europe, uh, Britain would be underwater in 236,000 years? Russia also would be underwater? In other words, the whole world would be covered in water. Based upon current erosion factors, we know that the world cannot be 350 million years old or we would be one giant water world. There would be no earth left. So science just came against old science. Now what you're experiencing today right now is called cognitive dissonance. That means I'm having a hard time going with you here, Pastor, because... I've always heard that this is how old the earth was, and so I don't know if I agree with you. Yeah, here's what that is. If you study education, you would know that the hardest thing in the world to do is to unlearn something. Is it when you've been taught something, 
a certain way, it's really hard to unlearn it. But the truth is, is that current erosion tells us evolution could not be possible. None of us would be here. That many years would be underwater. There's just simply no answer to that. And so to me, I believe that is the death nail of evolution, which means the only plausible answer to our existence is a God of the universe who created us, who put us in motion. Well, pastor, how can you explain how we have this many layers in? Oh, that's easy. You ever built a sandcastle where you grab dirt and you pack it in to build a sandcastle? You know, dirt, the reason why you have to have so many hundreds of years to get it to have layers is because we're, we're counting on man or no one else touching it ever, right? Because it couldn't be a God that touched it. But if you want layers rapidly, that's easy to do. Just go hire anyone you want. I mean, you go to our parking lot, that's layers. I don't know if you knew that. There's about three layers out there for you to park on it. And so they just took dirt, put another layer over it, another layer over it, another layer over it, and then you, you hardened it, and that's how we have a parking lot. And so they just, as long as you have someone messing with it, packing it in, you can do it pretty quick. Which sounds just like the God who said that I hold the earth in my hand. That that means that in a supernatural way, he must have started in the beginning, Genesis 1, in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Can't you just see him packing it in? Starting with this little ball that he's going to put a lot of love into and create you and me. That sounds exactly like what a God would do that created the universe just perfect for us. Even scientists call our planet the privileged planet. That for some reason, who knows how, accidentally, we can live here in perfect climate, but no other planets have that. Huh, it's almost like someone thought of it. It's almost like there was a plan. God designed it for you and me. Rapid erosion of the earth is just too quick to prove anything uh, else. Ariel Roth uh, put it this way. He says this, it is of interest that the recent trends in geological thinking favoring major rapid changes or cat catastrophism uh, provide interpretations that fit well with the biblical flood. The thousands of millions of years proposed for laying down of the fossil-bearing sedimentary layers of the earth raise a number of interesting questions that challenge the long geologic ages suggested by current scientific interpretations. Okay, that's a whole lot to say this. People are discovering that there's no way it could have gone really that long because the layers happen really fast through flooding. That's what he's basically saying. So I'm just trying to cut through all that scientific jargon. Then he says this. Think about this. Think about the layers of the earth for a second, right? That we've been told that there's layers. Oh, this layer represents 3 million years, and this layer is 10 million years, and this layer, right? Here's the problem. When we get to those layers, when we start digging up these layers, guess what we find? We find a whole dinosaur just sitting there. But then guess what they don't find? They don't find any plants. How is a dinosaur supposed to be in this layer that represents a million years or more, and there's no plant life for it to eat? How'd that dinosaur survive? If it was a million something years in that little time frame? Or could it better be explained that maybe that was just a layer thrown on top of another layer real quick? And that maybe three layers down that didn't take millions of years would just happen really quick overnight because of maybe a big flood? There's some shrubbery there that the dinosaur was eating before it died? Guys, these explanations are not complicated. You don't have to have a science degree to figure this out. Let me finish this quote. Animals require plants for food in order to survive. Yet in several of our important geologic formations, we find good evidence for the animals, but little or no evidence for the plants necessary to support the animals. The fossil assemblages found represent incomplete ecosystems. How did the animals survive for millions of years postulated for the deposition of these formations without 
adequate food. Now, let me give you three examples. I'm going to show you pictures of these on the screen so you can know this stuff is real. It's actual scientific discoveries. Here's the three examples of that. The first one, the Protoceratops dinosaur bearing layers in the Gobi Desert of Mongolia. It lacks plant life. So there's a dinosaur, no plant life around it. Number two, the Cocosino sandstone of the southwestern United States, which has good animal tracks, yet no fossil evidence of plants anywhere. You can tell me the plants live without, you can tell me the animals live without plants? Good luck. How long can an animal go without food? I mean, my dog starts yelping in a couple hours. So you're telling me these, these, these animals live and thrive without plants? Not going to happen. Number three, the Morrison Foundation in the Western United States that has many fossils of dinosaurs, yet virtually no plant life in fossils. What did these behemoth dinosaurs eat? It is widely accepted that many of these dinosaurs would require eating over three and a half tons of vegetation a day. Yet there are no plant evidence anywhere? How'd they live? That doesn't make any sense, guys. The theory doesn't withstand the evidence. So the evidence turns the theory on its head. The earth is not that old. I think there's layers that represent years, maybe hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. I just don't think it represents millions of years. There's just not enough evidence for a balanced ecosystem for that to be the case. How could they have survived if there was no plant life? Ariel Roth, last conclusion is this. A more plausible scenario for these deposits or fossils is that they represent layers laid down rapidly during the biblical flood, with the waters of the flood sorting the organisms into various deposits, the plants forming some of our huge coal deposits. That's from Ariel Roth. He's a paleontologist. He wrote a book called In Six Days. Guys, the truth is, is that the evidence is all around us, that God created the world the world is not as old as we'd like to believe it is. And the only reason we believe it's old, well, the world has to be old. Why? So evolution can exist. Well, evolution exists, therefore it proves the world's old. No, no that's, that's circular reasoning. And we've already disproven one, which disproves the other. So the challenge is, are we willing to open our minds to the new science that's relegating the 150-year-old science of evolution as non-existent? The discoveries are there. Your God is real, and he created the heavens and the earth. That's the proof. It's real. Last thing I want to close with, for those of you who really like science, I'm really not here to make science, science or scientists out to be the enemy. They're not. And I want to be real clear, there's a lot of scientists that believe in God. There's a ton of scientists that believe in the Christian faith as well and believe that it fits well with their own discoveries. And so I don't want you to get the impression, of, oh yeah, so science is bad. No, not at all. Science is just discovery of truth. As long as you're actually discovering truth instead of trying to hold on to dead theories. And as long as you're willing to open your mind to that, it's all there. In fact, by the way, years ago, Many scientists gathered uh, with their faith in mind all the time. You just don't hear about it a lot because a lot of scientific work is, is research that's paid for by the government and the government's been sued so many times every time science tries to point to God. Did you know that? There is an agenda trying to keep God out of science. And oftentimes it's not ran by the scientists, it's by others. In fact, did you know that years ago that during the Apollo missions, when we went into orbit, several of the astronauts on Christmas Eve, some of you are old enough to remember this, we're not gonna make you age yourself, but some of you remember, you can go on YouTube and watch if you'd like, when, this, when the NASA astronauts from space read 
the Genesis creation story on Christmas Eve, and they played it over the radio and on TV all around the world. It was a very powerful moment. Here's the problem. The next day, Madeline Murray O'Hare, the head of the atheist organization, sued the government saying, that's my taxpayer money. So that's why you didn't hear about the next story I'm going to tell you, because they didn't tell you, because they didn't want to get sued. You ever heard of a guy named Buzz Aldrin? Neil Armstrong is the guy who did what? Put his foot first on the moon, right? Buzz Aldrin was right there too in lunar module. Did you know that the very first thing consumed on the moon, you're not going to see this in, in, in textbooks because you can imagine the lawsuits. The very first thing consumed from the lunar module when they touched down on the moon was when Buzz Aldrin reached in his pocket and pulled out a packet that his church, Web Webster Presbyterian Church, where he was an elder, by the way. Webster, I was born in the hospital in Web Webster. I know this area really well. It's right by Friendswood. It's right by Nasser Road 1 when, in 518 in Houston. If you ever been there? And so he pulled out a little package that his Webster Presbyterian Church had put together for him of communion elements. And he pulled out, and the very first thing consumed on the moon was when American took some, some, uh, excuse me, some wine and drank the body and the blood of our Lord and had a cracker and celebrated communion on the moon while at the same time his church, his brothers and sisters in Christ in Webster, Texas, were also having communion that same night. You didn't hear about that in the textbooks, but that are some of the most brilliant scientific minds believe in God and celebrate God and even had communion on the moon. And every year now in July, Webster Presbyterian Church, as well as other churches around that area that have a lot of NASA community, celebrate what they call the July Lunar Communion, where they celebrate having communion on the moon. How cool is that? Isn't that cool? I just want to encourage you today, if you're a young person, you're really into science, don't walk away from it. We need more people of faith to study science to discover the things of God, to discover all the evidence that there is, that there's a God who loves you, that created you, and that put this earth together. Would you bow your heads with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed. As we take a moment to pray, I want to encourage you during this prayer time. Maybe today's a tough day for you because for so long you trusted in the supposed evidence that we were created from gases and masses somehow, when the truth is the exact opposite of that, that the God created you a God who loves you. God not only gave us science, gave us the physical study of the world that he made, God also gave us his son. God interrupted history by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for you and me. And then Jesus rose again from the grave. Now he waits for you and me to individually receive him. You can receive Christ by praying a very simple prayer. You can just pray this with me now. You can say, dear Jesus, I realize I need you. I believe you died for my sin, and I believe you rose again. I ask you to come into my heart, be my Lord, and be my Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. In your name we pray. Amen. Isn't God good? His word is so true.